All right, good morning. Welcome to another week of our being scattered together, and happy Palm Sunday uh, to those of you gathering with us in this online way today. Uh, thank you for your continued faithfulness in gathering this way. Uh, we trust that God is using it in your life, despite the fact that we can't gather together in this space. Uh, so I pray that, that is the same for you today, uh, particularly uh, in these weeks as we enter into these Easter celebrations. Uh, so hard to do it this way, but Thank you for continuing uh, to press forward in this way. Uh, we're going to do what we do each Sunday, uh, which is look at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. Uh, for these next two weeks, actually, we're going to take a step out of our Matthew series um, and look at something uh, different for each one of these Sundays. Today, for Palm Sunday, looking at a passage from Matthew, or sorry, Mark 11. Not Matthew, Mark 11, beginning at verse 7. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, your Bible app, Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, just previously to this, Jesus has sent his disciples ahead of him into Jerusalem to uh, pick up a donkey's colt with which he's going to ride into the city for this triumphal entry which we're reading about today. Uh, and when they bring him the donkey's colt, we read this starting at verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before him, and those who followed after, were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve on the following day. When he came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he, found, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. And he came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking for a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came... They went out of the city, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. That's God's word. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this passage today on this Palm Sunday. Spirit of God, we come before you now and ask, as we come to your word, would you illumine your word, illumine the preaching of your word to us, to our hearts, to our minds, to, to our lives as we seek to understand you, as we seek to understand who it is you're calling us to be. We believe that your word is powerful and effective. It will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Oh God, do that in each one of us this morning. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Amen. Now, I know that it's rarely, if ever, helpful to make generalizations, so I'm just going to speak for myself, uh, uh, but whether it's uh, the dentist calling, the, the doctor calling, whoever it is, contacting me to make an appointment from their office, I know I can very often just blow off those calls, delete those emails. In fact, sometimes I even feel annoyed and insulted by them. 
And the reason is because I think I already know what they're going to say. Uh, like this, in, in my own mind, I'm just thinking, like, all they're going to do is just poke and prod at me for a few minutes, maybe probably make my gums bleed at the dentist there, and then they're going to say what? Make sure you floss more, make sure you exercise more, make sure you're eating the right healthy foods, doing all this stuff. But because I know I'm basically fine already, I'm fine, why don't we just save some time and money and I'll just make sure I do that stuff, floss and eat right and exercise, and then everybody can just get on with their day. Sounds pretty good. Brilliant, right? Yeah, well, um, of course, the problem among, among many with that approach and what makes it not brilliant at all is that presuming health as the starting place. When I presume health as the starting place, first of all, I risk ignoring serious, maybe even deadly problem in my life that they could address for me. And presuming health, like beginning with that as a starting place, also causes me to interpret these potentially life-saving actions towards me uh, as annoying, as insulting, maybe even as threatening. And I mention all that as we look at this fairly well-known scene from Jesus' life, because whether this is the first time you're reading this passage or, or you've heard it or read it like 200 times, this is the 200th time you're hearing it. If you just, if you look at every other character in this story that's not Jesus, I can pretty much guarantee you, you're going to see every single one of them operating in that same presumption of health, in this case, spiritual health, and as a result, completely missing the devastating diagnosis that Jesus is coming to point out to them here. Like, just, just to, to, show you this. Consider, for example, the religious ruler's response there in verse 18 to Jesus' actions in the temple. Beginning, I mean, of course they do, beginning with the assumption of their own spiritual health as well as the the, the health of their spiritual leadership over the temple, they interpret Jesus' actions as disruptive and his diagnosis as threatening and worthy of destroying him. Um, Think of the, the, the money changes, the guys selling animals, like just, just doing their job to help people make their sacrifices in the temple. I can guarantee they, they sure weren't seeing Jesus' actions as helpful. They weren't interpreting it that way. Um, the, the, the crowds shouting Hosanna and waving their palm branches. They, they began with the presumption of the Jewish nation as a whole, that God's chosen people, Israel, as they started with what well, were healthy, And so they wrongly interpreted Jesus' coming as being to purify them from the spiritual disease of the Gentiles. And and really, actually, Jesus' own disciples. I mean, I guess we're not actually told exactly what it is that they were thinking in this moment, but I think the lack of any description of their response shows that even they missed the full meaning of Jesus' actions here. There's probably just a lot of, I I don't know what he... they, they, They missed it too. But the reason why I believe this is still so important for us to look at today, listen, is not because, well, you know, it's Palm Sunday, so I guess we better look at a passage about Palm Sunday. No, no. Um, It's because I I so strongly believe that the church today, the church today is in no less danger of having the exact same devastating diagnosis that Jesus makes here of the temple spoken over us. And that we're in no less danger of making the exact same presumption of health that would cause us either not to hear Jesus' diagnosis or or to not want to hear it. And and there's all kinds of reasons and and things that could lead us to have that presumption of health or, or even maybe even just a presumption that we already know 
what this passage is about because, oh, I grew up in the church. I've heard this taught about lots of times. Maybe I've even studied this myself. I, I know what this is about, causing us to want to maybe blow off this invitation from Jesus for a diagnostic appointment with him this morning. I just want to encourage you not to do that if that's what you're feeling today because here's all I know is that as I studied this passage this week and particularly as I talked through it with my home group a few months ago, I remember just being blown away. I realized there was all kinds of incredibly important, like deeply right now today relevant things here that I know I'd never seen or been taught before that maybe even my own presumption of health had caused me to misinterpret. And so in the hope that we today as a church might together collectively just in every way we can lay down our presumptions this morning that we may have and open our hearts, open our ears once again to to let Jesus speak fresh to us, to hear what Jesus wants to say to us, not what we assume we already know that he wants to say. Let Jesus speak to us fresh. In order to do that, I want to look at this passage today And and I want to show you just two things from it. I want to show you the true significance of Jesus' arrival and then the true meaning of Jesus' curse. The true significance of Jesus' arrival and the true meaning of Jesus' curse. Just... I think that's going to help us to really see this in a whole different way today. So if you've closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to our passage here? Mark chapter 11, beginning of verse 7. Follow along with me as we look at this momentous occasion in the life of Jesus that forms the basis of all of our Palm Sunday celebrations, really still to this day. But that also highlights the, potential, the potentially devastating problem of presumption. Okay, okay, so let's look first of all at the significance, the true significance of Jesus' arrival. The true significance of Jesus' arrival. And I want to look at this first of all because, as I just mentioned, there were all these different competing interpretations about the significance of Jesus' triumphal entry, even as it was happening in Jesus' day, let alone today, whatever interpretations we have of it. Think about it, the religious rulers, for them, Jesus' triumphal entry was an affront, right? It was an attack on their authority as well as on the temple itself by this imposter, this fake Messiah and all of his radicalized followers. Uh, For for, for the crowds, Jesus' triumphal entry, they interpreted that uh, as a procession of their military messianic champion who would arrive to to free them from Roman tyranny tyranny and and restore power to Israel. That's that's how they were interpreting Jesus' triumphal entry. I I don't know exactly what it is for you, how how you've always understood and interpreted this, but the question I want to ask you to think about is this. What what about for Jesus? What, What did Jesus' triumphal entry mean for him? And I don't know if I've ever seen this before in the past, but I think the ultimate answer to that question is found in looking at Jesus' intended destination, his ultimate destination as he enters into this city riding on a donkey's colt. Because I don't know about you, but for for as long as I've heard this passage or read it or studied it, I've always interpreted Jesus' triumphal entry as being about his arrival in Jerusalem. It's all centered around Jerusalem as a whole, as as the events of Jesus' life and ministry now come to their intended climax, where he'll give his life uh, here on the cross in just a week's time. And that's right. Like, that's true. I think the problem is it's just not specific enough. Because look at verse 11. Mark tells us here that he entered into Jerusalem and went into the temple. Do you see that? 
He entered in Jerusalem, yeah, but then went into the temple, which means, you see here, it was not Jerusalem in general that Jesus was arriving to in his triumphal entry, but the temple in particular that he was coming to. You see that? Now, why is that significant? So what? Well, I think it's significant, first of all, because it reveals that Jesus had a specific destination in mind when he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. It was not the city in general, but the temple in particular that he was coming to. But I also, I also think it's significant when you consider that the, that, that, like what the destination itself, the temple, was. Namely, the meeting place between God and mankind. That's what the temple was. It was the place where God's presence dwelled by His Spirit and where, where sacrifices were offered in order to atone for sins. That's what the temple itself was. For, for in the temple, there, that, that, that's what happened. The role of a priest serving in the temple was to offer these sacrifices on behalf of men and women to, to mediate, as it were, between sinful mankind and a holy God with these sacrifices. But in, in accomplishing the purpose for which He'd come, Here comes Jesus now, the one who Hebrews refers to as our great high priest, the one Timothy calls our one mediator between God and man. Here comes Jesus as he's about to now offer the sacrifice that will atone for the sins of the whole world. So he's coming to this place of meeting between God and man as a great high priest to offer this sacrifice to atone for the sins of the whole world. But what's also incredible about Jesus is that not only has he come to the temple as a high priest, he's also come as the sacrifice that will be offered in order to atone for the sins of the world. He's come as that Lamb of God that John the Baptist calls him who will take away the sins of the world. So he's both. He's both the priest who, who offers the sacrifice as well as the sacrifice itself. But even more than that, alongside both of those things, great high priest, atoning sacrifice, Jesus also comes to the temple here as the Lord, as the King. Jesus as King, that's one of the key themes in, in Mark's gospel here, but he comes as the sovereign Lord over the temple. I think that's actually the the key piece uh, and the greatest significance of all of Jesus' arrival here. For listen to this, in the last word of prophecy spoken by God before over 400 years of silence, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, listen to what God speaks these words over his people. He says, behold, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will come, where? To his temple. The Lord whom you seek will come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And I believe that the significance, the ultimate significance of Jesus' triumphal entry has to do with the fulfillment of that particular promise and that prophecy. That's, exa- that's the significance of it, revealing Jesus here, it's re- presenting him not just as a priest or a sacrifice for sin, but as the Lord, as the promised messenger of the covenant. That's, that's what Jesus' triumphal entry is ultimately revealing about himself, that he is the Lord coming to his temple. For if you look at the scene immediately following Jesus' cleansing of the temple, uh, the high priests, they come to him and they'll be like, yo, what, what's up? Where, where do you get these authorities to come in here and start doing all this stuff, throwing over tables and everything? Where do you get this authority? And in response to them, what does Jesus do? He points them specifically to John's baptism, actually specifically John's baptism of him as his response. Because 
That's what we're, in that moment, if you remember when we studied that at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, that's where, remember, heaven itself opens and Jesus re- receives his divine validation, his divine coronation as the beloved son of the father with whom he is well pleased. He can come to the temple and do this because he is the Lord over the temple who has promised he will come to his temple. So, so that was the significant of Jesus' arrival for Jesus. It's the fulfillment of this promise, the Lord coming to his temple. But think about that. When you compare that with all those other interpretations that we just looked at from all these other people, it means in the end that that significance wasn't really understood by anyone. Nobody got it. Now, I mean, sure, everybody assumed they did. They thought they, they understood the significance of that day's events correctly. And yet, as we saw earlier, because they were beginning with the assumption of health, beginning with the understanding that they had the mind of God, they understood what was going on, led them to completely misinterpret the significance of Jesus' actions here and consequently to ignore the life-threatening diagnosis that Jesus had come to bring. They completely missed it. So as, as, as we take that and try to apply that, see how that applies to our lives now today, 2,000 years later, I think one of the very simplest ways would be to to approach our interpretation, to approach our understanding of the actions and the purposes of God, both in our lives as well as in the lives of other people, just with a great deal more humility, a great deal more just pausing and and, and reflecting, a little bit more humble self-reflection first before that. Because if nothing else, what we're clearly shown in this passage is that beginning with the assumption that we've got it right, we're the spiritually healthy ones, our purposes and God's purposes perfectly aligned, when we begin that way, it can lead us to all kinds of wrong interpretations of what God is actually up to. Whereas something just as simple as patience, just the patience to stop and wait, collect a bit more data first, observe a bit more, and also humility. Not just patience, but humility to suspend forming final conclusions before submitting our interpretations to God and asking, am I seeing this right? God, this is what this looks like to me. Am I, am I interpreting your actions right? If we, if we would just do those two things, a little bit more patience, a little bit more humility, it would both open us up many times to see what God is actually trying to accomplish, as well as giving us ears to hear, oh, so often missing when we begin with the presumption of health, giving us ears to hear what it is that God truly wants us to know. Okay, so, so that's the true significance of Jesus' arrival. Again, the specific destination of his arrival, I think in particular, helping us to rightly shape our interpretation of what that significance is. This is the fulfillment of that promise, the Lord coming to his temple. The last thing I want to look at together with you now is the true meaning of Jesus' curse. The true meaning of Jesus' curse. We need to look at this because, as we see in the rest of our passage, the Lord coming to his temple, as we saw that, that, prom, that prophecy from Malachi fulfilled, was not simply to come and pay a visit. Right? He had a very specific purpose for that coming. And that purpose for coming, as we keep reading in Malachi 3 there, is this. Listen, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Oh, 
Okay? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Which, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a bad thing. Like this sounds, or at least it just sounds like this is going to be a, a hard, uncomfortable thing, right? And yet again, because the people began with this presumption of health, they didn't see, they, they interpreted this purification as purifying them from Roman oppression, them, purifying them from pagan Gentile influence, not, not seeing any way that the temple itself or that they themselves would need purifying. It was purifying from these other things because they began with the presumption of health. Look at verse 11 again. We, we see, let's just follow through with this story. We, we see, again, Jesus comes to the temple, he looks around uh, upon arriving there, really inspecting it, as it were, and then he heads back to Bethany for the night as it's already late. But then, as you keep reading there in verse 12 and following, you see that uh, before he gets to the temple the next day as he's returning, there's this really random scene, actually, this really kind of cringy kind of scene uh, where Jesus is on his way to the temple. He's looking for food on this fig tree, and upon finding none, he curses it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then, as we read in verse 20, at the end of our passage, when they walk by that very same fig tree the following day, it's withered to its roots, completely gone. And and first thing to notice about that story of the fig tree is notice the way, even as I said it, it brackets the the story of of Jesus' actions in the temple. It kind of sits on both sides, which is actually a really common literary device that Mark uses throughout his gospel called sandwiching. Uh, literally sandwiching, where he places something on either side of a story that helps provide deeper meaning for what's in the middle, uh, uh, either by way of contrast or parallel. So this helps interpret this here. So, so quickly, uh, I want to just help us understand this fig tree part, because a lot of times, particularly for people living on the West Coast, we can't get past this. We've got serious problems for anybody, even Jesus here killing trees. We're like, what? What do you mean he killed the tree? What? Particularly when... As Mark tells us, the reason he didn't find fruit is because it wasn't the season for figs. That just seems so unjust. Like, what's going on with Jesus? Just flying off the handle. This would be like Jesus like, wiping out a Starbucks in the summer because they won't make him an eggnog latte. It's like, Jesus, it's not the season for eggnog. They can't make it for you. It doesn't make any sense. So what's going on here? And the, the short answer, very simply, before we cast too strong a judgment on Jesus, is that while it was not the season, this is how we understand this, while it was not the season for fully ripe figs, unripe pods, which became figs, they were called pegum, that people very often ate, often, they, they, they did appear on fig trees just before the leaves began to show. They, they were all over the tree. And so already being in leaf was actually, what was actually surprising was that this fig tree, which appeared like it should have fruit on it, ended up not having any fruit on it upon closer inspection. That was the surprising part, which showed that the tree was actually diseased. It appeared to have health, but it actually was diseased and had no fruit on it, which hopefully even saying that helps you to understand why this story of a fig tree on either side of this cleansing of the temple is actually not random at all. It's actually an enacted parable of what Jesus is about to do in the temple. 
But look now at verses 15 through 17. You see, following Jesus' inspection the night before leads him to this righteous fury, this righteous indignation the following morning as he comes and sees this market set up in his father's house, this market that the temple has now become. But, okay, here's the thing. We need to pause here because, again, if you have heard teaching on this passage before, you've studied this before, what do we usually assume, what do we usually hear then that Jesus is so upset about? It's that people are buying and selling stuff in, in the temple, right? That somebody walking around, they're selling like hot dogs and popcorn at church. Uh, hey, don't forget to stop by the temple gift shop on your way out. And, and, and that's what Jesus is so upset about, right? Uh, that's what we hear anyway. And, and, uh, you know, and we hear about you know, the, the unjust business practices of the money changers that were charging people too much and all this stuff. Now, yes. Yes, there's no question. Didn't, God didn't want his temple then or his church today to be a, a marketplace, a, a place where people come to buy and sell goods. He didn't want people using the church directory as some kind of Rolodex for their business calls and sales calls. No, right? Like, as Jesus rightly says here, God's house is to be a house of prayer, a house where people gather together as his people and offer prayers and worship to him, not to go shopping. But what if I told you that once again, location is actually what was most significant here? Location. For where this market was, where this thoroughfare was all taking place was in the outer courts of the temple, known as the court of the Gentiles. This was the part of the temple where all non-Jewish worshipers were permitted to come and pray and offer sacrifices and worship God. If you remember from our series in Ephesians, there was actually this, this wall in the court that, that separated the court of the Gentiles from any of the inner courts where only Jews were allowed to enter. And there were these warnings on that wall, warning Gentiles, any, any non-Jewish person who crosses this boundary is taking their life into their own hands. It was very much a no-go zone for the Gentiles. But just, just stop for a second and try to imagine this scene for a moment. I don't know if you've ever seen the inside of maybe visited or just seen on TV the inside of a, a trading floor, say something like the New York Stock Exchange, where you've got these crowded bodies, people shouting and waving, like papers and lights and stuff flying all around, all at this fever pitch during the day's trading. And then imagine, first of all, that scene multiplied of, of sound and distraction, multiplied by a hundred times, and then try to imagine coming before God and trying to worship Him, trying to pray before Him in that environment. Can you even, can you even imagine like, being able to do that in the midst of all that? But you see, this is now where Jesus' diagnosis reveals the fruitless branches of the temple, the, the very hallowed center of Jewish identity. For if you look at the first scripture Jesus quotes, look, look at verse 17 with me. Look at the first scripture he quotes. We see that not only is the temple to be a house of prayer, it is to be a house of prayer for all nations. For all nations. And there's actually countless scriptures from the Old Testament outlining this. Namely, that God's chosen people were not to be an end in themselves, but they were to be a light to all the nations, revealing the character and the nature of their God to them so that they would come to know him. If you look at Isaiah 56, which is where that, that first quote that Jesus is quoting from here, it's incredible to see it's, it, that, that, that scripture is all about God's offer of salvation, God's welcome to those who were outcasts, those who were formerly excluded from the temple and worshiping him. It's all about his welcome, and yet 
in placing this market, this, uh, this trading center, in the only place where these Gentile worshipers were even allowed to worship Yahweh. They were given the exact opposite impression from the one that God intended. As N.T. Wright rightly notes, the temple had been intended to symbolize God's dwelling with Israel for the sake of the world. But the way Jesus' contemporaries had organized things, it had come to symbolize not God's welcome to the nations, but God's exclusion of them. This is the first reason Jesus is so upset, and that in itself would have been bad enough. But moving on, Jesus' mention of the temple as a den of robbers next is even more devastating. For again, what do we usually hear? What do we, that, that reference, den of robbers, we've been taught or we assume Jesus is referring to the money changers, right? The, the people selling animals, the gift shop employees overcharging. Like that's, Those are the den of robbers that he's referring to. But then actually listen to the context of that quote from Jesus, which actually comes from Jeremiah 7. Listen to where that quote comes from. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly exercise justice one to another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods uh, to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered only to go on doing these abominations verse 11 has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes behold i myself have seen it declares the lord wow 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 okay so do you see it you see what, what Jesus is actually referring to? He's not, his reference here to a den of robbers is not to the money changers. It's not to people selling animals for sacrifices in the temple. His, his quote is directed directly towards the religious rulers as well as to the entire corrupt system that the, the temple cult had become. He's pointing specifically at this thing. He's saying this is a complete hypocrisy. As David Garland rightly notes, the den is not a place where robbing takes place, but where robbers retreat after having committed their crimes. Calling the temple a a robber's den is therefore not a cry of outrage against dishonest business, business practices in the temple. Jesus indirectly attacks them for allowing the temple to degenerate into a safe hiding place where people think they can find forgiveness and fellowship with God no matter how they act on the outside. And so in the same way that Jesus came to that fig tree which appeared to be healthy, looking for fruit and finding none, the Lord comes suddenly to his temple, which also appeared yeah, busy and bustling and healthy, and finds its branches bare of the fruit that they were supposed to be producing. 
which means the curse that Jesus spoke over that barren fig tree and the terminal diagnosis Jesus spoke over this barren temple are one and the same thing. He says, you're both diseased, and I'm pronouncing my curse on you. Evidenced by Jesus' words just two chapters later, upon leaving the temple, he tells his disciples this. Do you you see these buildings, he says? I tell you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I mean, there's a thousand things we could say about so much of that as we think about how Jesus' diagnosis of the temple then applies to our lives today, both individually as well as corporately as a church. But as we think about maybe just those two areas of focus that Jesus highlights in particular, I just sense God's Spirit calling us to that same humble self-reflection that I talked about a moment ago, just to really pause and humble ourselves and honestly ask ourselves two questions. First of all, where have I set up walls and barriers in my life? Where, where have we as a church set up walls and barriers in our church that keep out, that exclude the very people that God wants us to extend his welcome to? Where have we done that? You know, you know those people at Halloween that want to make really sure that everybody knows, hey, there's no candy here. Don't, don't come up here and ring my doorbell. And so they shut off all their lights. They make sure there's no pumpkins or anything out front. Maybe they even turn on the sprinkler in the front yard just to make sure. I, I'm not, not judging you if you do that. I'm not even talking about Halloween. What I'm asking you are, what are some of the, the ways, even unintentionally, that we might be communicating that exact same message about Jesus and the church to the world around us? Saying to them, hey, this, this isn't for you. You're not, you're not welcome here. Don't, don't bother coming. What are this, the ways that we do that exact same thing? Or, or if we are extending God's welcome, but, but the, the community around us, the city around us, doesn't see us that way at all, doesn't know that about us, then okay, what are we doing to help correct that false assumption that they may have about us? What are we doing to, to change that? And the second question to ask ourselves is, as it relates to being a den of robbers, a den of thieves and a hideout for robbers. As I read that, I just, we've, we've, we've just heard too much in the last years about just corruption in the church, abuse in, in the church, people using the church as a shield for, for some of the most horrific abuse and injustice. I think specifically just recently this uh, exposure of what was going on in the ministry of Rabbi Zacharias, if I can even call it that. It's just, I can't even call it heartbreaking because it's, it's so much more than that, but God will not tolerate this. God will not tolerate his church being used as a place where, where, where robbers and thieves hide out in the protection behind this shield of religiosity. He will not allow it. And so the question we need to ask ourselves here is, is there any sense in which you could honestly say that your faith or or our church has become a means for you to hide your prejudice, to excuse away injustice? Oh, those are political issues. That's not a gospel issue. To, To rename people's suffering so you don't have to get involved in the messy work of change. Is there any sense in which we do that? Is there any sense in which I do that? It, it, it's all too easy, particularly when we're presuming health from the beginning, to say, hey, well, we're the church. 
We're God's children. We follow God's word and forget that those worshiping in the temple, when the Lord came suddenly to it in Jesus' day, they would have said the exact, exactly the same thing. We have this incredible opportunity living in a city like Vancouver, which, has, which is so broad, so broad and diverse culturally, diverse ideologically, diverse ethnically. This incredible opportunity living here. As well as, we've got this incredible opportunity living in this cultural moment that we do right now, where, where there's so many things and changes being brought to the front and people doing real work to change these issues of racial injustice, uh, uh, gender discrimination, uh, go- corrupt governments seeking to take away people's democratic freedoms. We've got this incredible opportunity right now as the church to be involved in that, to be a part of extending God's welcome into those places. But when the church becomes just about self-preservation, about protecting ourselves and our thing and, our, and what we do and the ways we like it, when it becomes more about that than it is about being Christ's ambassadors out there, extending God's welcome to the world that is so desperately in need of him, then we've abandoned our purpose if we're not doing that. We've abandoned our purpose for existing as a church. And our branches also become barren of the fruit God expects us to be producing. There is actually some good news in this passage here, believe it or not. I know this has been a heavy and a challenging word today. But there is actually some good news in this, for although, yes, the presumption of health can absolutely lead us to make some of the same errors that the people of God fell into in Jesus' day, It's also important to remember this, that the very same Jesus who spoke that curse over the temple and prophesied its eventual destruction is also the same Jesus who in John 2 said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. As John goes on to comment, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Remember what a temple is, the meeting place between God and man. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And so we must never forget that, yes, although Jesus pronounced God's curse over this physical, unfruitful temple, his purpose in coming wasn't to just destroy the temple, but it was to replace it. It was removing this corrupt system which was no longer producing the fruit it was supposed to because that was never the ultimate end, in the, that was never the ultimate end to begin with. The ultimate end was that he, God's dwelling among his people, like, just like in the Garden of Eden, the first temple. That was what was taking place. He wasn't coming just to destroy the temple, but to replace it. That's the incredible thing. Jesus himself becomes the temple now, the, the meeting place between God and mankind. As, as Paul tells us in Colossians, that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. We, we, uh, we have the presence of God with us. Now with Jesus here coming to replace this temple, that's, that's why he can say this. And then even more than that, even more than that, as the Apostle Paul so powerfully reminds us in Ephesians 2, by breaking down those walls of division in his flesh through his sacrifice on the cross, now that Jesus has returned to his Father and put his Spirit now in us, we are now the temple. 
We are now living stones, he says, being built into God's temple and being built into the dwelling place of God's spirit in this world with Jesus, he says, as the chief cornerstone. We now ourselves, because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of what he's going to go on to do following this triumphal entry and cleansing of the temple, to become the temple himself and to become that sacrifice, we can now become the temple of God in this world today. So I think the point then for us as a church today, in light of everything that we've looked at in this passage, is first of all, we need to fight against the presumption of health. We need to fight against that place of, of, I get it, I see it all, I know and understand, and and to have that patience and to have that humility, to take the time and seek God to really see, are we understanding your actions here? Are we understanding what you're doing correctly? And then as it relates to extending God's welcome to the world, in many ways, very similar to what Paul talked about there in Ephesians 2, about how God has broken down these walls of division, made this one new man between Jew and Gentile. He's, he's brought them together. I think along with what we just said about not presuming health, I think the other thing that God is calling us to as a church today is to do the exact opposite of what we hear of that, that wedding blessing from Matthew 19 that Jesus speaks, where he talks about what God has joined together, let man not separate. I think as a church what God is calling us to is to do the exact opposite, the flip side of that. That, that, we, that we would, as a church, would that, that what God has separated, walls and divisions that God has torn down in the death of his son, God's call to us as a church that we would not seek to join together. We would not seek to build up and put walls in place where he has torn them down. Oh, we may be that as a church. May we be that as individuals who make up this church those who fight against the desire to presume spiritual health and those who do not seek to build up and put walls and barriers in place but extend God's welcome to everyone who is in desperate need of hearing it. Amen. Amen. God help us to do that.